0: Welcome to the Business of Health Podcast, your go-to resource for practical insights on managing employee benefits and lowering health care costs. I'm your host Mike Martins and together we'll uncover strategies to enhance price stability and optimize your company's health benefits. Let's dive into the world of healthcare economics and tackle the challenges of the business of Health. Well, thanks for joining us for another podcast on business of health. I just want to say real quickly that I greatly appreciate the number of downloads that we're getting. It's going through the roof, and our audience is growing. We're getting more and more business owners and HR professionals tuning in on a bi-weekly basis to listen to the episodes. And I really credit that to my guests and to the content that they bring to the table. We've got a great topic today because we're going to be talking about reference-based pricing. And that's something that I know a lot of brokers and agents have some level of working knowledge in. On the HR and business owner side, you may have read something about it or heard something about it, but we've got an expert today that's going to take us into the weeds and try and not only give you some ideas on how this works, but probably most importantly, how you can make it work successfully. Todd Archer is the president of Concierge Third Party Administrators in Martlesville, Oklahoma. Now, I got to tell you all up front that First Staff Benefits does a lot of business with concierge on our ACA compliance side, and we love them and our clients love them. They do a tremendous job. Todd's got over 35 years of experience and a long history of success in third-party administration of health benefits. Prior to joining concierge, he worked for several regional and national TPAs in various executive management roles. He serves on a lot of boards, both at the community level and the industry level. If you attend SI of the Self-Insured Institute of American Meetings, you've probably met Todd. He truly is an authority on our topic today. And I have to add, there's one other, it's not the only, but there's one other incredible feature that Todd Archer brings to the table, even though he lives in a sea of sooner red. Todd is a Tennessee volunteer. So with that, Todd, welcome. Welcome to the business of health. Yeah, Mike, thank you very much. Appreciate being here looking forward to uh, going over this discussion of workplace far. Well, let's step back and kind of set the table, Todd, on how this concept came into being. It didn't seem like it was that long ago, but it probably was that most employers with the exception of a few very large employers were operating in fully insured arrangements and they had a PPO or preferred provider organization network attached to that health plan. Now, The function of the PPO was to provide contracted, pre-negotiated, discounted rates for all kinds of services from simple lab work to complex surgery. Sounds good, but the only people that really knew what those discounts were was the carrier. So, Joe employee goes through his life and has some diagnostics and has a procedure and maybe has a hospital stay and receives this explanation of benefits from the carrier that says. You know your procedure was seven thousand dollars after the discount. Uh, it's thirty five hundred. You have a five thousand dollar deductible. Start writing checks to these providers, and that kind of feeds into this whole broken system that we're dealing with, where Americans are consuming healthcare with absolutely no idea what it costs, what they're spending. And I've always used the example: if you walked into your favorite neighborhood supermarket today and they had removed all the prices. From the shelves, you would leave. But no, we go to the doctor, we go to the diagnostic center, we go to the surgery center, we do all these things, and then we sit and wait to find out what we're going to have to pay. So, as we have now evolved into this world of more advanced self funding, where, gosh, we've got, we're seeing groups now down to 15 lives that are in some sort of self funded arrangement, it put the employer in a position where all of a sudden they went from being a statement from a carrier to looking at utilization and to looking at cost. And I think, as it should have, a lot of those costs scared him to death. So in walks the concept of reference-based pricing, and to way oversimplify this, basically what is transpiring is an employer is stating that they are going to pay X amount, and usually it's, it's a multiple of Medicare at some point, and we'll get more into this, but this is all we're going to pay. And this is how it works. So let's kind of Todd, look at and talk about this genesis of reference based pricing and, and how it kind of got started and how it's evolved.
1: Yeah, okay. So, so like on, on reference based pricing, or use the term RBP, but you'll also hear some people refer to it as value based or value driven health plan designs. You know, all of that is still referring to the payment methodology that we'll just use the term RBP. And as you referenced, it's really the use of a reference price as the basis for the reimbursement of a medical provider for a delivered good or service. And the reference price, as you alluded to, is generally stated in terms of the sum multiple of Medicare because the Medicare allowables are publicly available data. So you're turning yes. it back to no value, right? And then there's some of the companies that utilize proprietary databases that will encompass several reimbursement methodologies like not only Medicare, but Medicaid, TRICARE, and even data from the commercial carriers to develop what they consider to be a fair price for the good or service that's being rendered. And it helps bolster the defensibility of the allowed amount that they're using. Okay. So that's it. And then and then, secondly, how it got to the market really, the RBP concept really goes back to the advent of the PPO plan designs. So, when an employer member would go to an in network provider, the reimbursement was at the PPO allowable amount. So, the amount that the provider had contracted with the PPO to charge for those services and therefore was part of the agreement in them joining the network. However, the plan participant, if they went to a non-network provider, then the plans were using what was usually referred to as RNC tables Mm -hmm. or customary that really set the allowed amount for those non-network providers at some prevailing fee for that service in that geographic area. Now, over time, the cost of that data... And issues around making sure that that data was current in the claims processing platforms that payers were using to adjudicate claims in really resulted in payers such as TPAs looking at other avenues to establish the plan's liability for these non-network claims claims. And a lot of them ultimately wound up going and started using a percentage of Medicare again because of the public available data to base those non-network reimbursements on So that was really kind of the initial for a reference-based pricing as we know it today
0: in the process. So let's kind of go through an example. I own a company and we have made a decision to go self-funded on our group health insurance plan. And the first right decision we make is to hire concierge TPA to administer the plan. What discussions occur, what data is provided when you're looking at a historical group And granted, Todd, I know this is more difficult when they're coming out of a fully insured arrangement because you have credibility issues with claims data. But they have looked at this and said, you know, we can save a significant amount of money, we think, by going this route. What's the first step in moving them from the old PPO mentality to the RBP mentality?
1: So, you know, obviously, there's enough of the RBP business now that there's some empirical data to go into helping underwrite those plan designs. Because, you know, obviously you're going really from a, you know, PPO environment where you know there's a known, you know, discount on any claims, particularly in the in-network side of things, to really back to a true straight indemnity plan where they can go wherever they want to go. So, but the stop-loss markets, I mean, to me, the real crux of your question goes back to how do you evaluate the value of the RVP methodology when you compare it to a PPO. To me, at the end of the day, the stop loss pricing is really where you're going to see the value. Now, that value can vary greatly based on the specific case that you're talking about and also what geographic area they're in. Yeah, reference-based pricing tends to have a larger pricing impact on more urban areas because typically build charges in your larger urban areas are much more than they are in a more rural setting. So savings is not as significant, right? But it's not uncommon for you to see savings in the 25 to 30% range depending on, you know, whether they're in a larger or even the medium-sized metropolitan areas of the country.
0: Well, there's no question that, you know, in the old PPO world, and I'm not picking on California or the Northeast, but those costs were always higher. And, you know, yeah, you had a discount, but let's say you had employees in Oklahoma and you had employees in New Jersey and Southern California, in the PPO world, you're really dealing with three entirely different scenarios and RBP is going to bring that to a level playing field, right? Right. Okay. It will.
1: You know, and the other thing is, you know, how prevalent is RBP in the market? And again, that's a little difficult because, you know, in the the national health plan surveys, that's not typically been a question that's been asked. And so it's a little difficult to get your... Hands around, you know, how prevalent is this in the market? The Lockton did a survey back in 2019 that stated about 2% of employers were currently in the RBP plan design, but that up to 10% of them were actively considering that concept as a potential. And when you consider that, none of the BUCAs, the Blues, United, Singer, Etna, none of them do any RBP then to me, that number seems to be pretty representative of the market is. So it's going to be somewhere in that two, probably 10% of the
0: marketplace is currently utilizing RVP. Well, but don't you, Todd, don't you see that growing exponentially? I mean, something's got to give. And when it comes down to what the employer truly can control, there's really only a handful of things. And if they have a good solid reimbursement strategy, I was going to say pricing strategy, that's not right. It's a reimbursement strategy. They at least are going to see measured savings. Yes.
1: That's a great point. I mean, certainly it is something that is being actively looked at by the market. And so, To me, one of the main things for someone who is looking at and considering RBP is really having at least some understanding of what those key components are in the process. So if you look at the main components, the first one of them is really a Medicare repricer. So that really replaces the PPO network. So if you think about it, a PPO network basically takes – a bill charge, and they reprice it to what that contractual amount is. Well, a Medicare repricer. When I say Medicare repricer, we're talking about companies like Elap, Payer Compass, HST, Six Degrees, Claim Docs, just to name a few. Those are the Medicare repricers, and really, what they're doing is they're taking that bill charge and they're applying a what they deem to be a fair price for the services that are being rendered. As I mentioned earlier, some of them it's usually stated as a percentage of Medicare, but it's usually based on a lot of different payment methodologies and data they have to available to see and determine what is actually a fair price. So that's the first step, right? Is just that repricer. But I think to really understand all the components, I'm going to take a couple minutes just walk through the Mm claims test so that everybody kind of gets a full understanding of. You know, the components that are there and the the role they play and the importance it is to understanding, you know, what they're there to do and why they're there to begin with. So in an RBP, as we mentioned, there's really no PPO network. So there's no network The participants in the play can go to any provider they will. However, the realities are that in today's environment, there are a lot of providers that unless you are a participant in a network, And they recognize the logo that's on your card they don't want to see you right i mean they just say i'm sorry you're not in a network that we recognize so you'll need to go somewhere else okay so the second most important component of these plans is some type of enhanced pre-certification utilization review that includes an advocacy service to help direct those plan participants to providers who will actually see them? There are databases available that show which providers are open to, you know, reference based pricing type programs. And you need to make sure you're working with someone who can help direct your members to providers who are willing to participate in this type of plan design. And then to take the advocacy piece a step further, once the claim has occurred, and if there is a dispute between the provider and the plan about the amount of the reimbursement that has occurred, then there needs to be an advocacy piece for the member to make sure because the providers are going to try to put the member in the middle, by Baller's healing the member because that's the Achilles heel for the plan. And so there needs to be somebody there that can basically step in the shoes of the member and can help negotiate with the provider from a position of strength that the members are generally not going to be in. And so that whole advocacy piece needs to be there to make the process work, to get the member out of the middle of the dispute between the plan and the provider. And then finally, you know, statistics show that about 10% of the claims there's going to be some degree of threatened legal action on behalf of the, typically it's the provider, but generally only about 1% to 2% of those clients actually get into a situation where there's got to be some type of legal action taken where you're going to have to get attorneys involved. And so the plan's got to be prepared for that and they need to make sure they've got legal representation to handle that. And then if the plan is self-funded, then you've got to make sure the stop-loss carrier is aware of what's going on because sometimes these negotiations and these disputes can run past the actual timelines in the stop-loss policy. Stop-loss carrier got to be aware of what's going on. They've got to be in the loop so that, you know, they can prove any extended timeframes that they're willing to allow to let the process complete itself, you know, before
0: the claim gets negotiated. Well, let's touch on that because my term is change management. And in a different way, but yet similar, Todd, we experienced this with the advent of minimum essential coverage. All of a sudden, an employee sees something in a brochure or online that says, I can get these benefits for $12 a week. No idea that they're only buying well care and preventive services. And so there was was a lot of education that had to go on so that we didn't end up with somebody thinking they were buying a a Blue Cross Blue Shield plan for $12 a week. And there's no question that an employer that's wading into these waters has got to have a really strong back room to help them with that. What type of communication do you kind of see? And where I'm headed is the process for an employer that is committed to doing this, and we reach that stage where it's time to educate the employee. What have been successful steps in reaching out and making sure that the employee knows that this is a different delivery type of system and you may get nasty grams? And if you get nasty grams, here's what you do.
1: Right. So, number one, and you go through that process, all of those RBP reprisers that I mentioned earlier, they all have specific. Processes that they go through, right? So they, you know, and so I think it's really important to vet that because at the end of the day, they're going to really be the quarterback of the process for the employer plan sponsor. And so I think it's important for them to vet who that is to make sure they're comfortable. They all take different approaches, right? You know, ELAP historically has been more of what, what I use the term scorched earth, right? This is all we're paying, we don't care. A lot of them have gotten a little more friendly. A lot of them then have direct contracts with the providers that they can access that take some of that pressure off. And so they all have a little different strategy on how to manage the back end of this process to eliminate the member disruption that invariably is going to occur in these type of arrangements. And so understanding how they do it, communicating that effectively. And I'll take it one step further. In what I've seen on the plans that really have not had a good experience with RBP, oftentimes the employer, and and this tends to be the C-suite or whoever's responsible for managing the plan at the employer plan sponsor, they get really enamored with the savings potential that gets shown in the cost comparisons that they're doing when they make the decision to go into reference based pricing because it will save money and it is a very compelling economic argument. But if that's just a C suite, then going to HR saying, we're going to do this, make it happen without HR really understanding what's going to be involved and what's going to, how it's going to manifest itself, strike one. <laughs> Absolutely. And so, and then because then, then HR's got to go try to communicate it to the frontline managers probably not going to go well because they don't really understand what's going to be involved. So the front line managers, and then they got to communicate to the employees and then all of a sudden you have no understanding institutionally of what's going to occur in order for the plan to to function effectively. And so to me, that communication is key, not only upfront, but in the decision making process, the C suite needs to communicate effectively with the HR and include them in the process of the changeover. They've got to communicate effectively to the frontline managers. Then you communicate to the employees. Oftentimes, it becomes a little bit of a disjointed effort. And I think a lot of times that's what leads to a lot of the unhappiness is because there's not a clear understanding of what's required to generate the savings that generated the interest in initially.
0: Well, and don't you think a lot of that is where the consultant broker agent could come into play? I mean, we all know in today's economy, a lot of HR departments are wearing multiple hats. And I think that is true regardless of the size of the company. And as a consultant, if you successfully presented a solid RBP Pricing methodology that has been accepted by the C suite. At the consultant's point, this job is just beginning because they really have got to drive that communication process down deep because not only applies to current employees, but every new hire that is coming in might be coming from a Blue Cross Blue Shield fully insured plan and they have no idea. So it's an ongoing challenge that has got to be concise and direct and informative. And I think one of the most important points of that is to make sure the employees know what could potentially happen. Number two, don't panic. And number three, here's what you do. If you get this level of communication, don't go nuts. Just reach out to who you're supposed to reach out to and let them do their job.
1: Yeah, you know, and those are all great points, Mike, because at the end of the day, this is an ongoing it's a moving train, right? So you have people coming old and off. And so that ongoing communication in addition to the initial communication is essential. And certainly I think, mm-hmm. you know, the, the the broker community by accessing the resources that are available through either your TPA or your Medicare repricer or whoever you're trusted advisors are in the space, certainly is going to make it
0: ultimately become a more successful venture for the client plan sponsor. I got two questions. Is there any component, Todd, that we have not addressed that really needs to be addressed, either for someone that is wanting to move this direction, learn more about this? That's question one. And question two is, if I'm an employer and let's say I'm already on a self-funded platform, I've got an integrated PPO network, and I think I want to go to reference-based pricing, what's the ramp-up time? I'm going to make a wild assumption that uh, here we sit in basically the end of March, and this is not something that could be implemented for an April 1 effective date. So what's kind of the ramp-up on this?
1: Well, yeah, it could be implemented <laughs> would not be implemented successfully. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I I think at the end of the day, we all. I don't want our stuff to be successful. Yes. So, in a perfect world, that gets tough, right? Because it depends on you know how sophisticated and advanced the employer is with their, you know, processes and procedures. I would say on reference-based pricing, in order to do it effectively, you know, where you normally gonna need 60 to 90 days under on a regular PPO plan just changing that. You're probably gonna need probably at least twice that in order to really effectively make it happen. And so certainly it doesn't necessarily have to take that long. But I would say on average, you're probably going to need at least 90 days, you know, probably 120 in order to really make sure that you've got all the I's dotted and the T's crossed so that you're giving yourself the best
0: opportunity for the program to be successful. So as we sit, and I already mentioned, we're basically at the end of March, first part of April. It's not too soon if you're an HR director, a consultant, a business owner, and you think, wonder if this will work for me. Really, now's the time to start putting the shovel in the ground, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, if you're looking at a you know calendar year renewal date of a 1-1, yeah, you probably really need to have those conversations, at least initially with the broker, to identify who the players are going to be. You need know, to you be doing that in the June, June July timeframe and starting to move forward, you know, to make the, the thing work.
0: Sure. And the other question was, is there anything that, I forgot, or we didn't talk about that. Ought to be put out on the table today,
1: Mike. I don't think so. I think you've done a real good job of kind of framing the conversation, and hitting all the high points that the audience needs to know about these types of plans. But so, yeah, no, I think we've hit all of the high points and you know gotten into sufficient detail to help them better understand the
0: concept and what are some of the important things that they need to address. Well, one of the things that always happens, Todd, when we release a podcast is my email lights up. You know, what about this? What about that? How does somebody get a hold of you if they've got questions or interested in looking at this and maybe working with concierge on the development of an RBP platform?
1: Thanks, Mike. So yeah, probably the best way is by email. My email address is todd at cbscas.com. Again, it's todd, T-O-D-D, at c
0: b s c a s dot com. Perfect. Well, Todd, thanks again for being with us today and sharing your knowledge on this. I think it's been incredibly informative and helpful and uh, really appreciate you being a guest. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. I've really enjoyed it. Well, the only bad news today is that we're at the end of the show. So thanks for listening to the Business of Health podcast listening to this show puts your agency in position for success. Remember to click the link below. Check out my website at www.firststaffbenefits.com. Give me a shout. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Keep listening, keep learning, and keep taking action. Until next time, this is Mike Martins signing off.